Well, it's great to be with you again today as we continue our study of Romans. I hope you took up the challenge last week to read the letter during the last week. If you did, I hope God's already working through Romans in your life to bolster your faith. But uh, if you didn't, that's okay too. Hope you'll read it this week. But uh, much of my goal in these first two weeks is really to help you read Romans better. I'm trying to help us get our minds around the story behind Romans. What were the things that led to the writing of the most important letter ever written? Last week, we we learned the story of Romans as it relates to Paul. And what I want to do today is help us get familiar with the story of Romans as it relates to the Romans. Now, to tell that story well, like the story of the Roman Christians and the Roman churches, the best place to start would seem to be with how those churches got started, right? That makes sense. If you wanted to tell the story of Richfield Bible Church, which isn't that long of a story, it's hard to tell that story without talking at least a little bit of how this church got started, what went into it getting started. But with Romans in particular, there's something we saw last week that makes this question of like, where do these churches come from even more interesting? Because see see if you remember this. When Paul wrote this letter, how many times had he been to Rome? Remember? He had never been there when he wrote the letter. He had wanted to come for a long, long time, but he said, "I've, I've not been able to come yet. Now, here's the thing. If he's never been there, did he plant the churches? This is not, okay, no. He did not plant these churches. Almost all of the letters that he, he writes 13 letters, okay? Almost all the letters he writes are to churches that he planted, right? Places that he went. But that's not the case with the Roman churches. And so the question is, if he didn't plant these churches, Who did? Where did they come from? How is it that 20-some years, 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, there's all of these churches in the center of the Roman Empire? Where did they come from? And the truth is that unlike pretty much every other church that we know of that Paul was connected to, we don't know anything in the Bible about where these churches came from. Or at least you could say no one really knows for sure. I mean, you can find out how the church in Corinth got started or how the church in Ephesus got started. But there's nothing in the text of the Bible that actually tells you where these churches came from. Now, having said that, I can at least tell you the most likely story from drawing from a few, a few other things. And it's worth hearing. It's worth hearing it. Okay? The most likely explanation for how these churches got started in Rome is that you had Jewish Christians really early on, okay? Like, remember, like Pentecost, Peter preaches, and you have like 3,000 Jewish men come to follow Jesus, okay? There were people there, it says in that story, visitors from Rome who were there, Jewish people from Rome. Whether it was those specific people or others, the, the most likely explanation is you just had early Jewish Christians that went to Rome for work, 
business, maybe even as slaves, and they just were doing their ordinary stuff. Living in Rome in the center of the empire, and what did they do while they were there working? They started telling their neighbors about their new faith in Jesus. And what did God do through the ordinary witness of ordinary Jewish Christians in Rome? God started to save more and more people in Rome so that within 25 years, there are house churches scattered throughout Rome. No, no apostle, not, not Peter, not Paul, no specific thing seems to have been involved in the planning of the churches in Rome. Just ordinary people doing their job who know Jesus, telling other people about Jesus, and God starts a bunch of churches through that. In fact, there were so many Jewish Christians in Rome within 20 years of Jesus' death that it actually led to serious conflict with the other Jews in Rome who didn't like Jesus. There was such conflict between the Jews in Rome who liked Jesus and believed in him and the Jews in Rome who didn't like Jesus that the Roman emperor himself had to get involved to try to restore the peace in Rome. And I want, I want to show you that. Okay? That is talked about in the Bible. Look at the book of Acts, chapter 18. Okay? I, want to, I want to start here in the text today. Acts chapter 18. You want to know the story behind the Roman churches? We can't know everything. Like We don't know who exactly was the first person to bring the gospel to Rome. We don't know that kind of stuff. But we do know that within 20 years, there were so many Jewish Christians in Rome that there was a big conflict between them and other Jewish people who didn't like Jesus that the Roman emperor, Claudius, had to get involved. Look at Acts 18, verse 1. Think, what did the emperor do to solve the problem? Okay, this text will tell us. Acts 18, verse 1. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Okay, this is a long way from Rome. And he found a Jew there in Corinth named Aquila. Maybe you've heard of him. A native of Pontus. Recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Maybe you've heard of her. Be- why? Why are they so far from Rome? From Italy. Because the emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That was his solution. <laughs> there were Jews fighting other Jews about this Jesus stuff, and he didn't really care about that too much, so he just said, I'll kick them all out for a while. That was the edict of Claudius that happened about six years before the book of Romans. Okay? He sent them all out, and that's actually how Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla in this other city. They were tent makers like he was, they were Christians, and he got to know them. <clears throat> Now, I'm going to need you to think hard about this. All right. Those verses tell us what Claudius did. About seven years before Paul writes the letter. Six to seven years. And Paul's down in Corinth, meets Aquila and Priscilla, who've recently been kicked out of Rome. Okay. All the Jews had to leave, is what the text says. That was how the emperor tried to keep the peace. Now, you might think, this is kind of interesting, but 
Will knowing any of this actually help us read Romans any better? Okay, and I want to try to start answering that. So go to Romans, and I want us to take a look right where you wouldn't expect first. I want to look at the very end of the book. Okay, look at Romans chapter 16, the last chapter of the book of Romans. In the last chapter, Paul is going to send personal greetings to all kinds of people. Like, there's like 26 people he mentions by name that he's saying hello to in the churches in Rome. He doesn't do that in any other letter. Nothing like this. But today, I just want you to see the very first people that Paul sends greetings to as he closes his letter. Romans 16, verse 3. The very first people. He says, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that's in their house. Now wait, are you tracking with that? Okay, think about it. Where did we just see them? Okay, about seven years before this, six, seven years, where were they? They were with Paul, but definitely not in Rome. Why not? Because the emperor, Claudius, had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. But between that point and the time Paul wrote this letter, what happened? That edict stopped, and they went back home, and they're the very first people that Paul greets in the Roman churches. There's, in fact, a church meeting in their house. So what does that mean? What do you think? Does that matter? I want you to think about this a little bit, okay? Because that's still interesting, but I still don't see why that matters. Okay, now I want to connect the dots a bit. Okay, so, so just take a step back. So the churches in Rome get started through probably just ordinary Jewish people who found out about Jesus, telling other people about Jesus. God works in a powerful way. Churches start, grow, are established throughout Rome. Now, let's suppose you would have went and you would have visited those churches. Okay. What would they have been like? Who would have been in those churches, those early churches in Rome? You would think they would have been mostly Jewish Christians, right? There probably would have been some Gentiles that had come to Jesus as well in Rome, but mostly Jewish Christians. And, they, and those churches maybe would have felt a lot like a Jewish synagogue. They would have had a very Jewish feel to them, right? And that would have been the case for many, many years. And then something dramatic happens. What happens? The emperor, I mean, this is in Rome. The emperor kicks all the Jews out. So, so what happens in the churches, do you think? Like, if there's, like, Jewish leadership in a lot of the churches, they're mostly Jewish, they certainly have Jewish feel to them, and the emperor steps in unexpectedly and kicks all the Jews out of Rome. What do you think happens to the churches? Who do you think has to step in and lead those churches? Probably the not-Jewish people, right, who are still in those churches. The Gentile Christians in those churches need to step in, step up, and fill the gap and start leading those churches. And that's 
what seems to happen. And, and you know what happens? God keeps working through those Gentile Christians to bring more and more Gentile Christians into these churches. But while those churches are growing in Christ, they're becoming less and less what? Jewish, right? Why? Because there are no Jewish people in them. And what do I mean by this? Okay. So the concerns that early Jewish Christians had for stuff like circumcision, what kind of food you eat, what kind of Jewish holidays you celebrate, how much do most Gentiles care about that? They don't care about that. The churches are growing in Christ and are becoming less and less Jewish. But after just a couple of years, that emperor's law goes away and the Jews start coming home to Rome, including people like Aquila, Priscilla, and many other Jewish Christians. And they come back home and they come back to their same churches and what do they observe? These churches don't look like or feel like what they did before we left. Things have changed. As one of my friends likes to joke, they come to the first church picnic and what's on the menu but hot dogs and ham sandwiches. And they're like, what is this? But it's not just that. These Jewish Christians that are coming back, some of whom may have been the initial Christians in Rome leading these churches, are now not nearly as influential in these churches. They're in the minority. And not just that, they're looking at this stuff that's going on and it bothers their consciences to see this kind of stuff going on in the churches. And do you know what all of this is a threat to? This is a threat to the unity of the churches in Rome. And do you know who knows about this? Paul. Paul knows this is going on when he writes to the Roman churches. And so what does he do? He writes a letter to help them with those issues in their church. He specifically about how Jews and Gentiles relate to each other and how Jewish and Gentile Christians need to, do you remember what we, it was read? Megan read it. Need to welcome one another because Christ has welcomed them all. Now, if you'll read Romans this week with that story in mind, you'll find that that question of how Jews and Gentiles relate is never far away. It's throughout the entire book of Romans. And for right now, for today, I want to show you just a little bit of that. So look at Romans chapter 1, and I'm just going to try to give you a taste of this idea that this issue in the Roman church shows up throughout the whole letter. It actually shapes a lot of what Paul writes in the letter. So Romans 1, for example, we're just going to look at a few different texts and think about it. Romans 1, verse 5. Paul says, through whom, through Jesus, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you, Roman church, who are called to belong to Jesus. Now, do you see that? Paul Paul thinks of the Roman churches as, a, as Gentile churches. Did you pick that up? 
He says, Jesus has sent me to all the Gentiles, including you, Roman churches, because by this point, they are predominantly Gentile. They're not Jewish churches anymore. They're predominantly Gentile. He says, I'm coming to you. Jesus has called me to go to you. But then look just a few verses later. Look at Romans 1, verse 16. You maybe have heard this verse. Just think of what he says. He says, at the very beginning, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to the Greek. In this key verse, he reminds them that all Jews and Gentiles get saved in the same way through believing the same gospel, through trusting in the same Savior, Jesus. And then do you know what he does for the next three chapters of Romans, most of the next three chapters? He talks repeatedly about how Jews and Gentiles are all equal. Why? How do you know all Jews and all Gentiles are equal? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all equal because we're all under sin. And if you want to see a good example of that, look at Romans 3. Look at Romans 3, verse 9. Where Paul kind of summarizes what he talks about. Romans 3, verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Any better off than Gentiles? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Nobody seeks for God. All people have turned aside. Together they become worthless. Nobody does good. Not even one. And you might say, especially if you've never seen that before, that's really, really bad news (laughs) right there. And you're right. But that is foundational to unity in a church. To, to recognize that we're all equal because we've all sinned. We're all in the same boat. And on our own, not one of us is any better off than anybody else. None of us is righteous. No, not one. But for Paul, this bad news for all people is why the good news about Jesus is so good for all people. I mean, if you just look at what he says in Romans 3, verse 22, just get one example of this. Romans 3, verse 22, Paul says that we can all be made righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is no distinction between us. Why? Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. On our own, every one of us is in the same predicament, the same danger. But the good news is that God sent Jesus for us all. No matter the race, no matter our status, it doesn't matter who you are, you can be made right with God in the very same way through the very same person, through faith in Jesus. Real equality. We love talking about equality. in our culture right now, okay? Real equality is grounded in this. And there's a few things it's grounded in in the Bible. Like one, we're all created by the same God in his image. But for Paul right here, real equality is grounded in this. We are all sinners headed for judgment. 
nobody's any better off than anybody else. And then equality is grounded in this. Jesus came for all of us to rescue us all. As has often been said, we all stand equal at the foot of the cross. This is part of Paul's vision for equality. We're all in the same predicament, under sin, headed for wrath. And we all can be saved through Jesus. That's what grounds equality in the church. Now, what I've been trying to give is just a taste of this, of this idea that if you read Romans thinking about this Jew-Gentile stuff, it's actually everywhere in the book of Romans. It's never far away. Romans is not some sort of like theoretical treatise, you know, that's just not connected to anybody in real life. That's not what Paul was doing. He wrote a letter specifically to these churches with them on his mind. And as we saw last week, he wrote to stir them up to get behind his mission to Spain, but he also wrote them to help them be the kind of unified church God saved them to be. Paul knew Jesus died to make his people one, and Paul also knew that if those diverse Roman churches could be unified and at peace with each other, that would display the power of God in the heart of the Roman Empire. Now, I want to finish today by looking at one more part of Romans, the section that brings all of this today together most clearly. Look with me at Romans chapter 14. And I hope it'll make more sense to you now than maybe it's ever made before. Or maybe you're not even familiar with this text. I hope it'll help you. Romans chapter 14. Look at what it says. Romans 14 verse 1. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel and fight over opinions. Do you think this might have to do with the story I've told today? Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything. Who do you think that would be? Probably a normal Gentile Christian. (laughs) While the weak person eats only vegetables. Who do you think that might be? Maybe like a lot of the Jewish Christians who had concern about all the meat where it had been, where it came from. Let not the one who eats despise the one who doesn't eat. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? Because God has welcomed him. And he he goes on. And that carries through all of that chapter. And you see, this isn't just tacked on at the end of Romans. Romans is written with an aim toward this unity in the church between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians, like most of us here, were in the majority. Okay? They were the strong. They knew in their consciences that they could eat anything. All days are alike. Paul lays on them, the strong, the responsibility to welcome and embrace those who are weaker 
in their conscience, especially their Jewish brothers and sisters who are now in the minority. But it's not just to the strong that Paul speaks. He speaks to the weak, to his, especially his Jewish brothers and sisters. And what does he say? Don't judge them and think you're better than them because you're refraining from these things. Don't look down on them. Why? Because God has welcomed them too. And I'll, then we'll just skip ahead to the same text we read for our New Testament reading. Maybe it'll make even more sense. Look at Romans 15, verse 1. Paul says, we who are strong, because he actually agrees with the Gentiles on this. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what life together in the church is all about. And this is what's missed in our culture when it comes to church. Church is not about seeking to please yourself, about getting everything you want. Life in the church is about seeking the good of other people above your own. Why? Look at what he points to. Romans 15, verse 3. For Christ didn't please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We die to ourselves and seek each other's good above our own because that's what Jesus did for all of us. He bore the shame, the reproaches, the pain, the suffering for us all, for our good. We follow him. And then look at what Paul's ultimate goal is for the unity of the church. Look at verse 5. Romans 15, verse 5. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with each other, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you see it? When we together with one voice, in spite of our differences, sing to the same God and Father about the same Lord Jesus, And when we welcome each other in love, like Jesus has welcomed us all, it brings glory to God and it shows the power and the beauty and the wisdom of God and it shows the weakness and the emptiness of all human attempts to bring lasting peace and unity outside of Jesus. So last week, we saw the story behind Romans as it relates to Paul. Today, I've tried to tell us the story of Romans as it relates to the Romans. I hope, if nothing else, you'll be encouraged to pick up the book and read. But I also hope that you'll search your own heart today about whether there are any, any brothers and sisters here today that you haven't been welcoming. If there is something between you and a brother or sister before doing anything else today, I think I'd be right in line with what Jesus said before 
before coming to the table, go first. Be reconciled. Jesus died for you and them so we could all be one. And then lastly, I want to ask you to pray with me about a couple things. One is I would ask you to pray with me that God would cause the gospel to make such inroads in this community through us, in our community, in our neighborhoods, that more and more the diversity of this community would be reflected in our church. We want to see, by God's grace, the old and the young worshiping Jesus together, the rich and the poor, people from every ethnicity around us, all with one voice singing about the same Lord. Why? Why should we pray for that? Why should we pursue that? For the good of our neighbors and above all, for the fame of the name of Jesus, the king that we read about in Psalm 72, who's going to rule from the river to the ends of the earth. This is what he died for. So that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will worship him together. And then, lastly, would you pray that God will grant our church continued peace and unity in a time when there's such little peace and unity in our country. We don't want to take this for granted. I say this, I ask this request not because I sense any divisions among us, actually because I don't. I'm asking you to pray for God to grant continued peace and unity in the church. It was one of the main reasons Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, and it is one of the main reasons Jesus died for us, to make us one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just another chance to, I hope, just open our eyes to what you are saying in the letter to the Romans to us. I pray that you will challenge us, that you will preserve our peace, that you will grow our gospel witness for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen.